Chapter 18. The Communion of Saints The Communion of Saints is an often neglected article of the Apostles' Creed. A late addition to the Creed, the article, does not appear in the Nicene Creed, in that it was not a contested doctrine. However, as Babcock has noted, its presence in the Creed was not merely to state a truth, but more than that, it must state an objective ground or necessary condition of salvation. And this ground or condition must not be alterable, in the sense of the things to be believed. The faith had been the same ever since Pentecost. Moreover, the communion of saints cannot be some frame of mind among men. It must express some divine act or gift. According to the Roman Catholic definition, the communion of saints is the union between the church triumphant in heaven, the church militant on earth, and the church suffering in purgatory. The three form one church, whose invisible head is Jesus Christ, and whose visible head is the Pope. The major attention to the doctrine came with the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, is titled, Of the Communion of Saints. 1. All saints, being united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his Spirit, and by faith, have fellowship with him in his grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. 1 John 1, 3, Ephesians 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, John 1, 16, Philippians 3, 10, Romans 6, 5, 6, Romans 8, 17. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Ephesians 4, 15, 16, 1 John 1, 3, 7, and are obligated to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, 14, Galatians 6, 10, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. 2. Saints by their profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, Acts 2, 42, 46, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3.17, Acts 11.29.30, 2 Corinthians 8.9. 3. This communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead, or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Colossians 1.18, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Psalms 15.7, Nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each man hath in his goods and possessions. Acts 5.4 since communion is founded in union, this chapter cites, first, the union of the saints to Jesus Christ and their communion with him. Secondly, the union and communion of real saints with one another. Thirdly, the union of saints by profession and the communion which they are bound to maintain. So Shaw summarized the chapter. Three things are cited by the confession as aspects of this communion of saints in section 2. First, there is communion worship. Second, such spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. 
and third, relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. The work of pastors, teachers, widows, and deacons was the official ministry of the church in these areas. All Christians had an obligation also. The believers are thus fellow members, fellow saints, in a communion in Christ. They are saints by virtue of Christ's objective, atoning work. The communion is not of their making, but of Christ, and they enter into the communion as they are received by Christ. But communion is neither absorption nor obliteration, neither is it identity. The believer in communion with Christ remains himself, a creature, in communion with fellow believers. He is not merged into them, but retains his integrity as a person and in his family. As Hodge pointed out, the communion of saints is not designated to supersede the fundamental principles of human society as the rights of property and the family tie. Thus, section 3 guards against two heretical opinions, the one relating to the saints' communion with Christ, the other to their communion with one another. The purpose of salvation is not the destruction nor transcendence of man, but the restoration of man into his appointed God-given calling and place. It was the sin of man to seek to be as God, Genesis 3.5. It is God's grace that enables man to be truly a man. God's vicegerent on earth is Christ. It was man's sin which led and leads him to seek a false communion with other men in communism. It is God's grace which enables man to be truly a free and self-reliant man in his appointed place. False communion is thus in two directions. First, the false communion of saints is the assertion that men are or can become of one substance with God. In some forms, as with Mormonism, it is asserted that men are gods and the ontological and transcendent trinity is denied. In other forms, as with mysticism, man transcends humanity and the material world by his experience in order to become one with God. In all the various forms of this belief, the saints are saints by their own effort and election, and it is they who establish the communion with God or the gods. The law of their social order is therefore of themselves, of their own election, because the determination of things is in their hands. History, therefore, must be captured by man, conquered even as the gods and men are taken by storm. The very role of God is therefore determined by man, who is himself the bridge builder between man and God and man and man. The society or communion with God is one of exploitation. God is another vast natural resource to be developed in mind, and revelations are pragmatically forthcoming from the reigning saints as the necessities of history may require them. In Mormonism, or the Latter-day Saints, the power of revelation is vested in the reigning apostle and his associates, and the revelations have been pragmatic, i.e., they have served the purpose of man in history, rather than the purpose of a sovereign God in eternity. The captive God of mystical experience ravishes the soul of the mystic by sheer beauty, but in another sense is ravished by the mystic, who by his mystical experiences and discipline can appropriate God. The mystic denies history because he is superior to history and potentially its Lord. Instead of finding his God-given calling in history and seeing history as man's appointed realm, the mystic treats history as a burden, and both history and its burdens must be destroyed. Thus the mystic Angela of Boligno wrote, 
I elected to walk on the thorny path, which is the path of tribulation. So I began to put aside the fine clothing and adornments which I had, and the most delicate food, and also the covering of my head. But as yet, to do all these things was hard and shame for me, because I did not feel much love for God, and was living with my husband, so that it was a bitter thing to me when anything offensive was said or done to me. But I bore it as patiently as I could in that time, and by God's will, there died my mother, who was a great hindrance to me in following the way of God. My husband died likewise, and in a short time there also died all my children. And because I had begun to follow the aforesaid way, and had prayed God to rid me of them, I had great consolation of their deaths, although I also felt some grief. Wherefore, because God had shown me this grace, I imagined that my heart was in the heart of God, and his will and his heart in my heart. This is the psychology of a murderess, and a murderess who identifies herself with God. The mystic can only approach history from above, as Lord and God. Evelyn Underhill so approached Christ, from above. I come to Christ through God, whereas quite obviously lots of people come to God through Christ. For Evelyn Underhill, the initiative was upward, from man to God, and God's revelation does not come down, but rather emerges from the world. The incarnation involves complete humanity. Man ascends out of history by mysticism to become one with God, and then descends with power as a living law. Marxism is itself an inverted mysticism, with matter made the god of the system, so that man descends to identify himself with the general will of the masses and forces of materialism in order to ascend with power as the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mysticism is basic to tyranny. It involves the identification of an elite as gods who incarnate the will and decree of history in their persons. The biblical communion of saints is the work of God's grace through Christ. It is not man's doing, but Christ's work, and the communion is governed by his word and law. The second direction of the false communion of saints is manward. Everywhere, as against the fraternity of grace, men have sought to establish a fraternity of evil. Through the centuries, secret organizations have attempted to establish an invisible bond between members with secret symbols and goals in order to gain an end of man's scattering and division to undo the confusion of Babel. These hidden ties have succeeded by offering an advantage to man, i.e. by offering something more than bare fraternity, by offering power or pleasure. To this extent, therefore, their fraternity is an enforced one, having an ulterior motive. Their approach to the concept of a world fraternity or communion rests therefore on statist means. Secret fraternities have thus, through the centuries, had control of the state as their goal in order to impose communion on all men. The same is true of the open advocates of world communion. Their method is political and statist. They believe in a world community, ostensibly, but they deny it because they insist on an enforced communion. Because they are themselves by nature sinners at war with God, therefore at war with man, and at war with themselves, they can neither attain nor image anything but an enforced communion. These men seek to realize God's appointed goal as gods without God. But the fraternity of evil is a divisive fraternity, at war within itself, made up of numerous would-be gods who know only one law other than their own will, brute force. The false communion of self-styled saints is therefore tyranny. 
It may at times parade under Christian forms, but its method and goal are force and the state. The radical humanist in and out of the church and the death of God school of thought hold to a concept of communion which is beyond good and evil and in which communion with man is communion with God. Eric Fromm has written, God is one of the many different poetic expressions of the highest value in humanism, not a reality in itself. True communion for this faith means that good and evil are denied validity as objective moral standards, and all men must be received into communion as gods without any regard to their moral status. Thus, a litany popular in these circles identifies God with the city with the spick, black, nigger, bastard, Buddhahead, and kike with all men and calls for communion with all men as they are. Some churches have held meetings for homosexuals and work to further homosexual communion with their members. In terms of this new faith, there is no God or Christ in heaven. God and Christ must be found in all our fellow men, accepted as they are, without moral judgment or censure. This concept runs deeply through the so-called civil rights revolution. It was expressed by a degenerate criminal and murderer as he was being executed. Aaron C. Mitchell was dragged screaming to the gas chamber at San Quentin, and his last words were, I am Jesus Christ, look what they have done to me. But this total communion without law, communion beyond good and evil, militates against everything in man. No society has ever existed without class and caste lines. The more social distinctions are denied, the more force is required in society to bring men together, and the more force prevails in a society, the less the communion. The most readily discernible aspect of Soviet society to foreign travelers is the silence of people on the streets and in public places. People walk in isolation, because public speech is not the wisest of courses. As against this enforced collectivization, which is hostile both to true community and true individualism, is the communion of saints. The enforced community of evil has, first, no true community to it. It cannot see men united except by force or for gain. Second, it also hates the individual. It denies him his integrity of person and of property. The biblical communion of saints rests on a God-given communion with an inner bond. By the grace of God, there is first a loyalty to Christ. The true Christian views the world in terms of God's law. He sees the world in terms of a given perspective, a revealed framework, and the more he grows in grace, the more sharply is his thinking governed by this biblical framework. He is a member of Jesus Christ. He has a citizenship in heaven, a prior citizenship which governs every human relationship. His life is not his own, but Christ's. Second, because the governing force in his life is increasingly grace, it is an inner bond which binds him to Christ and to his fellow Christians. The Christians draw together, not in terms of advantage, and often at the price of some sacrifice, in terms of this inner bond. They have a common life in Christ, and therefore a common future. They are governed by a moral unity. They move in terms of the biblical morality and they are governed by a doctrinal unity, professing one Lord and one faith and one baptism in Christ. But their unity is not alone in faith and practice, but a unity in the heart. They are one people. They are closer to one another than the members of the fraternity of evil can ever be to each other. But this unity is not at the price of their particularity, their individualism. The fraternity of evil is ultimately destructive of both unity and individuality. 
of both the one and the many, but the communion of saints establishes both on their true foundation, the triune God. In him they are truly one, and in him they are truly themselves, so that both the unity and diversity of life come to their realization. The one and the many is not only a philosophical and a social problem, but a personal one. Man, as a creature of God, has both a need for unity in society and individuality and freedom. The non-Christian answers to the problem veer from the unity as collectivism to particularity as anarchism, and they are destructive of both unity and particularity. But David portrayed the unity of the saints, the communion of the saints, as the realization and even the christening of the individual. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Psalm 133, 1-3. As Leupold pointed out, the oil symbolizes the rich gifts of the Spirit, this communion and unity is a blessing which the Lord commanded. The author traces the blessings resulting from unity to the creative blessing of God. The communion of saints is the creative blessing of the triune God and the hidden, purposive unity within history.